Well, hallelujah, he's risen, he's risen indeed, and we celebrate the resurrection today, and it just brings joy to our hearts. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, how does the resurrection impact my life personally? And for some of us, it's kind of like a religious thing, and you get a new outfit at Easter time, and uh, you're going to have a big meal today, many of you, and you're with family, it's important to be together. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ resonate and impact our lives today? Is it part of your testimony? That's what we were singing about as a choir this morning, about how the resurrection and the realities of the resurrection and how He was raised for our justification and how embedded in the gospel, as Paul said in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no salvation apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul clearly said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter in verse 14 and 17, he said, and if there be no resurrection, we are, in the King James, it said, we are of all men most miserable. You just can't improve that translation. We're just miserable. Why? Because it's hollow, it's empty, it's not real. And yet what we've been singing about this morning is God's amazing grace and how His grace just amazes us. Why? Because we can take the microphone and we can go through the audience and we can hear the stories about what you used to be and then what you are today after an encounter with the risen Christ. I wonder if the microphone came to you if you would get nervous or if you would have a story to tell. I have a story to tell. Uh, this is my 19th Easter, and you've heard it probably 17 out of 19. <laughs> but I remember a 19-year-old college sophomore at the apex of idiocy. I mean, that most difficult of creatures on God's green earth, a 19-year-old college sophomore realizing that I was far from home and that I could walk off the campus of Appalachian Bible College and my pops could do nothing about it. And I asked myself as I walked up in the evening after washing dishes one night, I can take you right to the spot on that campus today. Why don't I? And I think all, in, all of a sudden in one lightning strike moment, it came together for me that what my dad had taught me was real and what it was true. And for some reason, at that moment, the resurrection of Christ crystallized in my mind and I believed it to be true. And I knew that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was real and he had authenticated his deity through his resurrection. Paul said that clearly in Romans chapter 1, that it was with great power that the Holy Spirit affirmed his deity by raising him from the dead. If Jesus is who he said he was, and if Jesus died on the cross for our sin as the ultimate sacrificial lamb, carrying our sin, completing the project, saying it is finished before his heavenly father, that is, he had done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He had brought God and man together by being the perfect man, the one who carried our sin that we could look to by faith and receive that great salvation in Christ, all done at the cross, and His blood could cover all sin. That's why John Newton, the slave trader, 
couldn't get over the amazing grace. I think of other ways that the resurrection applies to my life. I count on it for my salvation, Romans 10, 9, and 10. I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised him from the dead and therefore I will be saved. And if I stand before God someday and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I will quote Romans 10, 9, and 10 to him. Because you said in your book that if I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you said I'd be saved from my sin. And that's what I believe. That's all I know to believe. Because I sure can't find another religious leader who rose from the dead. None of them. I was thinking of a practical way that the resurrection of Jesus Christ applies to my life. I've shared this story and scene before as well. That little sandy cemetery in southern Michigan, underneath some oak trees, where we gathered as a family. And with tears streaming down our cheeks, we shared scripture and we prayed as we lowered my 21-year-old brother into the ground, died of leukemia. And a few years later, when we lowered dad into his grave right next to him, and a few years later when we lowered mom into her grave, there's Marceau Rowe. And tears have dropped into that sandy soil, but I want to tell you something. Not the kind of tears of those who have no hope. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ in his resurrected body was a prototype of our resurrected bodies. And in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15, we have the great teaching of how this mortal body is put into the ground and it decays, but it sprouts up again immortal and that there's flesh designed for earth and there's flesh designed to swim in the ocean and there's flesh that will be designed to live in heaven forever. And that's what we come out of the grave as a real person in the flesh, physical body, but designed for heaven. And so when we cry over the graves of our loved ones who know Jesus Christ, they have fallen asleep in Jesus. They are not lost forever. They are absent from the body and present with the Lord. And in fact, that gives me hope in the resurrection. John 14, 1 through 6. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, don't panic. Don't panic. Be at ease. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. You are not going to spend eternity with a concept. You are not going to spend eternity with a spirit. The spirit of Jesus that rose from the dead. It warms my heart to think of the, the, the metaphor of the resurrection. Utter, complete Garbage nonsense. If it wasn't a real physical body, it wasn't a resurrection. It's just make-believe, mumbo-jumbo. So what are you preaching today? I asked the pastors who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. What are you preaching today? I asked the pastors. If you don't believe in a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, oh, we're warming ourselves with the thought of the beauty of the Spirit of Christ that must have risen out of the ground even though His body was lost and it was confused and it was stolen and it makes me sick. And you don't believe the Bible if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I tell you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it should just change your life. It's the foundation for our salvation. It's a source of hope. It gives life direction to a 19-year-old college sophomore. Let's very quickly look at some, some testimonies from the Bible. I know that we could take the microphone and move through the audience, and we could hear some testimonies about how the resurrection affects you, as I referenced earlier. But will you go with me to Job chapter 19? And did you know that the resurrection is in the Old Testament? It's in the Old Testament, and it looks forward. We don't know everything about it. We don't, know, we don't know a lot about how God spoke to His people in the Old Testament. We know that they heard His voice. We know that they understood His words. We know that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was God. And that they could differentiate between His voice and other voices. But I'm so thankful that I have the written Word of God because this is how God has spoken to this age. You don't have to wonder, the, uh, that voice I just heard? I think that was God's voice. I want to tell you something. You have no idea whose voice that was. You can make up any voice you want. I'll tell you the voice you're going to hear. It's right here, in writing, black and white. And God gave Job a word. We don't know how. We don't know everything about it, but we know that God spoke to Job, communicated to Job. And in fact, this guy Job, if you're new to church world, this guy Job, a couple things you'll be interested in, I think you'll be interested, class, is that it's the oldest book in the Bible. Job is one of the richest men of the Bible. And he ends up being an, an experimental test tube case in this battle, in a sense, between Satan and God. That's in the early part of the book. We're not going to go there. Let me just tell it to you quickly. This is Job chapter 19, where we're going to be looking in a minute, so stay there. In the first two chapters of Job, the stage is set, and what happens is we're given insight, okay? We're given insight that, that on some occasion... After Satan was going to and fro across the earth, that he has an appearance before God Almighty. We don't know how this works. We're not given the details. We just know that it's recorded for us. And there it is. And Satan points out to God that he has observed God's servant Job. And he notices that Job worships God and obeys God and pleases God, even to the degree that he makes sacrifices for his children. Because like many of us, they're struggling. Job was struggling with passing faith on to the next generation. And he was so concerned that they were disregarding God that Job would make sacrifices on behalf of his children. And Satan observed that Joseph, Job was a righteous man. And Satan points his finger at him. He, in the New Testament, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, by the way. And one of the things that he does is he, he tries to make us feel guilty for things that are already forgiven. He accuses us. You did that. But it's under the blood. I know, but you can't forget it. It's under the blood. But you're guilty. You're no good. So he's accuser of the brethren. God doesn't remember even the sin that's forgiven. We do, but God doesn't. It's amazing. That's part of His amazing grace. And so Satan says to God, if you just take away the blessings of this guy, he will turn against you in a heartbeat. 
So that's what happens. And you kind of know this story. Um, man, storms come through and knock down his barns. Locusts come through and, and fire comes through and destroys all of his grain crops. His camels, his donkey, his sheep, everything's dying and dead and diseased. And enemy warriors come swooping through and kill and pillage and steal. And all of his kids were at a party um, at one house and all of them died at one time. And he had a lot of kids, seven, eight, nine kids, I forget. And, he, and he, they all die. And Satan comes and Job bows down and worships God. Satan comes back to God and uh, Satan comes back to God and he says, "Listen. I know that he's taken a full-fledged right hook on the jaw, but he's still praising you. Here's the deal. You haven't attacked his person enough. If you let me get at his person for a while, he will curse you." So God says, "Go ahead. Let's see what happens." So he does. And that's when the sores come. That's when the flesh Decaying disease comes upon him. It says, and it's very descriptively, it's grossly descriptive, where Job's only relief was found by breaking a pot and using the clay shard of the pot to scrape his sores and then let the dogs lick them. And he could get a little bit of relief. And, and then he would sit there with his hands over his ears because his wife would stand in the doorway or speak out the kitchen window and say, Job, why don't you curse God and die? The first testimony that we have on the resurrection from the Bible is in the Old Testament from Job. It is one of a couple places that the resurrection is mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's here in chapter 19. And we want to go right to the heart of the matter. And I want you to see what Job's response is ultimately. The biggest part, the biggest portion of the book of Job is actually difficult to understand because it is a dialogue um, uh, it is a conversation between Job and his three friends, and they fancy themselves to be intellectual philosophers, and so it goes, and it, it'll make your, head, your eyes roll back in your head when you read it. And they're trying to figure out, what did Job, at the bottom of it is, Job, what in the world did you do that this happened? What, did, what sin did you do, Job? What, what, what is it that you did that God is allowing this in your life? And they have no idea that a greater spiritual battle is going on. We need to keep that in mind, by the way. That as we're oppressed and as things happen in our lives, that there could be things going on behind the scenes and that what God is unfolding in our lives that we have no idea of. But here's where Job finds hope. As he looks forward 4,000 years, 4,000 years before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, this is what he says. Verse 23, Job 19. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Did you get that? In my flesh I shall see God. How did he know that? He knew it. This is the testimony of a man dying of disease. The testimony, number one, a man dying of disease. His life is coming unglued. He doesn't think he's going to live very long. God actually restores his life, multiplies his family, multiplies everything about him. And here's what he says, For I know, verse 25, that my Redeemer lives. 
I know that in my flesh, 26, I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, my heart faints within me. What's his hope? I'll tell you what his hope is. His hope is the same as any of us who are dying of disease. We're, it's out of control. We can't do anything about it. And life could fall apart. We have one hope. In my flesh I shall see my Redeemer. And Job says, mark it down in stone. The hope of the resurrection for a man dying of disease. I've been... Uh, studying at my mother-in-law's house on Wednesdays. She's here this morning. Wave, mamaw. There she is. That's my favorite mamaw. You mess with her, you mess with me. It'll get ugly in a hurry. And I go over to her house and study so that people leave me alone. And she's a big reader of the Martinsburg Journal and in the Martinsburg Journal there's the obituaries and once in a while I'll take my phone calculator and I'll calculate the, the mean age of the people dying in the journal. Last week it came out at 68. There was some 90 people. There was some 20s, 30s people. You know the Bible says we have three score and ten years, 70 years and sooner or later and sooner or later a disease is going to hit you. It's all you have. It's all you have. I've ministered long enough and I am now old enough to know that when you're 70, you don't want to die any more than when you're 17. But my friend, it's all you have. So what's your hope this morning? If you don't have faith in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and you don't believe that He's gone to prepare a place for you and you don't think that with your eyes and your flesh you're going to see Him again, you are a hopeless person. Testimony number one from Scripture. The testimony of a man dying of disease. Let's fast forward to the New Testament and let's go to Acts. And let's go quickly to um, a powerful testimony in Acts. It's chapter 26. I wonder if anyone here today can, can relate to this guy. This is a man who's driven with disgust. This is a man driven with disgust. Let's see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts his life. You have to understand, and Paul's going to give his own testimony here in chapter 26. Paul is in court with Roman rulers. This is all we're going to say about this. And he's being prosecuted for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you need to understand that this is in the end of the book of Acts. And the Apostle Paul hasn't always been the Apostle Paul. He used to be Saul of Tarsus. And in chapters 8 and 9 of Acts, you can read his testimony. It reads well. You ought to do that if you don't know it. And in there, he gives an account and he gives a recount of that testimony in chapter 26. Right in the courtroom. Because the reason he's being prosecuted is for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 6 says that the gospel is this. That he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scripture. In other words, because the scripture said it, it had to happen. You'll see that over and over in resurrection accounts, by the way. That because the Bible said it, Jesus will say it had to happen. That's how powerful scripture is. That's the gospel. Anybody wants to tell you, ask you, what's the gospel? Here's the gospel. Gospel means good news. That Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 says that is the gospel. And don't let anyone else teach you another gospel, Paul said. That's it. 
What you need to know is that the guy who wrote that gospel and recorded it for us is Paul after he was had an encounter on the road to Damascus with the risen Christ. You see, he was not at the cross. He was off somewhere. He, and, and let's just read real quick. Paul gets permission to speak. And then in verse 2, he says, I consider it fortunate that I can speak to you, King Agrippa. That's the guy that he's standing in court before. Especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then he gives an account of his early life. Verses 4 through 8, what he says is, My manner of life from youth was spent... From the beginning among my own nation, and it is known by all the Jews, and they have known for a long time, if they were willing to testify, they could do that, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee, so he was a very religious person, but he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You need to understand that not many Jews believed that. That Jews from the time of Abraham on were looking forward to Messiah to come. And when Jesus came, remember it says in John 1, he came, he came unto his own and his own received him not. They didn't get it. They missed it. He was there. That was Paul. That was Saul. He missed it. And so look what it says. Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, they were fed to lions, burned at the stake, had their storefront windows bashed in, had guys go on college campuses and just shoot away at them. And slaughter them for being Christians. And he says, I signed off on it because I hated it that people thought that that Jew, Jesus from Nazareth, was the Messiah. I know the Old Testament and I don't think it's true. And then he says this. And I punished them, verse 11, often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. He said, I would grab them by the hair and the ears and I would try to make their mouth work and I would try to get them to curse Jesus. That's how wicked this guy was. He doesn't deserve anything. He's like the guys who were in Kenya shooting up the Christian campus. They don't deserve anything. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. But for one thing, the grace of God. And that he came to save sinners just like them. And that's what happens. In this connection, he said, in, in my journey to wipe out these Christians, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on my way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, and it shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? Is that your question today? Who are you? Who are you? And by the way, some of you who've maybe been raised up following Christ, been taught to, to, to follow Christ, and you've just kind of like blown this stuff off, and you're kind of out there living for yourself. Can I ask you a question this morning? How's it going? How's it going? You really having a good time? Is it really working out well? All those relationships, they're really working well? All the decisions you're making, are they really going well? Are you really doing a better job than what your mom and dad raised you up to believe? And are you saying today, who is this Lord? Who is this Lord? That's a great question for you. Who are you, Lord? I'll tell you who he is. He's the King of Kings, and he's the Lord of Lords, and he's the master of your universe. You just don't recognize it. 
because you have not encountered the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look what Paul says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up to your feet, on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to all things. In other words, he says, you are now going to be my number one preacher, preaching Christ and Him crucified. And he's the one who wrote in Galatians chapter 1, that if anybody comes to you, even if an angel comes from heaven and teaches you that there is another gospel other than that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, was buried and rose again, consider that anathema. Don't even go there. Don't believe it. Even if it's an angel come from heaven, don't believe it. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the one that wrote what I said earlier, quoted earlier from the King James Bible, that if Christ be not risen from the dead, you are of all men most miserable. Paul's the one who wrote in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Paul became all about the resurrected Christ. And in fact, at the end of Paul's life, he described his life as a drink offering being poured out on the ground. He was in prison and... Uh, Tradition tells us that they took a, a big axe and cut his head off for preaching Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. That's the testimony of what the resurrection can do to a man who's driven by disgust when he gets a hold of the reality of the resurrection. Let's conclude in John 20. In John chapter 20, we have the testimony of two different individuals. Let's get a lady involved here. John chapter 20. What an incredible few days the disciples had experienced. And we know from chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 1, that the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark. The stone had been rolled away, so she ran. She goes and gets Peter. They come. And then she's all confused. And the next testimony we have from Scripture is the testimony of a woman deep with distress, deep in distress. So we've had Job, the testimony of a man dying of disease. We've had Saul, Paul, a man driven with disgust. We have now Mary, a woman deep in distress, and look what it says. But Mary stood weeping, verse 11, John 20. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood, stooped to look in the tomb. She saw the two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. She saw Jesus. As you count through the next part of the passage, you will see that she speaks to Jesus. She touches Jesus. She hears Jesus. She has a physical encounter, not inappropriate, but she physically sees Christ risen. He wipes away her tears. Mary, why are you crying? He says, why are you crying? It's all good. I'm alive. It's not a mystical thought. It's not a metaphor. It's not a spiritual truth. It is a literal, physical resurrection authenticating who he was, that he was for real, and that he died carrying the sins of the world to the cross according to the plan of God. And he resurrected again for our justification. Down to verse 24 of John 20. This is most familiar. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. 
This is to the disciples in the upper room, cowering for fear of their lives. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He wants physical, empirical evidence. He wants to be able to touch. He wants scientific proof. I want to scientifically prove this. It's the only way I'm going to believe. This is a man disillusioned by doubt. This is a man disillusioned by doubt. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas stopped doubting. And Thomas said, Here's his testimony. My Lord and my God. You are who you said. It's starting to make sense. See, it was after his glorification that the disciples began to understand what was happening. John 12 tells us that. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Ah, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Raise your hand if you've seen Jesus. We can talk about that. You've seen Jesus? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe? Raise your hand if you believe in Jesus. He says, More blessed are you who have not seen and believe than those who've seen and believe. And I'll tell you something. Over and over again. Look what it says in verse 30, by the way, and it goes along with this. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in the books. Book. In this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written that you might believe. Listen, if you are disillusioned by doubt and you are looking for scientific proof that Jesus is the Christ, stop your trip, stop your journey because you will never do it. It cannot be done. What about the Shroud of Turin? What about this? What about that? You can go ahead and do all you want. Over and over and over in Scripture, here's what it says. These are written that you might believe. There's only one way that you come to faith in Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing comes through the Word of God. And the reality of the resurrection is found in the written Word of God. Over and over and over. And this is the gospel that was preached unto you, that Jesus was crucified, buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Every time. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, where Jesus tells that story of the rich man and Lazarus, and the, the, the rich guy's in hell, it's a picture of a guy in hell, and he's dying of thirst, and he wants somebody to go back, and he says, I have brothers, and go back and tell them. And you know what Jesus tells the guy, what Abraham tells the guy in the story? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. Don't worry about them. And if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody comes back from the dead. How many people do you know who don't believe even though Jesus came back from the dead? The same people who don't believe Moses and the prophets. Disillusioned with doubt today? There's one place you need to be. You need to get embedded in the Word of God and give it a fair shake. Give it a fair study. Because more blessed are you who believe, who have not seen, and those who believe who have seen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Well, there it is. Four testimonies. The testimony of a man dying of disease. The testimony of a man driven with disgust. The testimony of a woman deep in distress. And the testimony of a man disillusioned by doubt. All, all who had an encounter with the resurrection reality of Christ. And it transformed their lives. Have you had an encounter with the resurrected Christ? I pray that today you'll look and live. I pray that today you'll understand that you're a sinner and that you fall short of the glory of God and that God in His love and kindness sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins so that by grace through faith you could look to Him and be saved. Not by any works that you can do. Only by looking to Jesus and acknowledging I'm a sinner. He's a Savior. I put my sins on Him. He gives me His righteousness. And by faith, I accept that. I believe. And I'm born again. It will transform your life. Let's pray. Will you examine your heart today? Do you identify with any of these folks? Maybe you're dying of a disease today and I don't even know it. Will you be encouraged that with your own eyes you will see Jesus? Grieving the loss of a loved one? If they knew Christ, you have great hope. Are you disgusted with Christianity? You must, you must deal with the resurrected Christ. Are you so disappointed and distressed like Mary? Something's grieving you? Look to the risen Christ. Are you a doubting Thomas? Look to the risen Christ. Get in the Word. Ask God to show you. Study the Word. Right now is a great time to just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, that He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Would you save me from my sin? Become His child. Father, You know our hearts. You know our minds. Thank You for this great truth. Thank You for Your amazing grace. And how you take broken sinners and you transform them through resurrection power. Would you give us a growing understanding of this reality? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thankful for our testimony that we can have a living relationship with you today. In Jesus' name, amen.